Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, and this podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, a pickup of a live webinar hosted by Retail Council of Canada earlier in the fall, I have the pleasure of comprehensive, engaging, and wide-ranging conversation with Ira Kalish, Chief Global Economist for Deloitte. This is Ira's second time on the podcast. With the benefit of almost one hour of his time, we deep dive into the global economy, region by region, including the current state and their prospects for growth or trouble. Next, we zero in on Canada, helping retailers understand the global forces and local impacts of our interconnected world. Uh, yeah. Dr. Ira Kalish is Chief Global right. Economist, Deloitte Touche Kamatso. He is a specialist in global economic issues as well as the effects of economic, demographic, social trends on government, global business environment. Ira and I will chat about direct and indirect impacts of inflation, war, natural disasters, demystifying the true impact uh, for Canadian retailers about the global economy. Ira, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here today. Well, uh, where are we finding you today? Whereabouts are you? I'm in my kitchen in my home in Los Angeles, California. Fantastic. We were just chatting before uh, before we started. You're, you're back traveling uh, you were in Rome when we yes. last spoke, and uh, do you have a full slate of travel for the rest of the year planned? Is it? I imagine it's a pretty busy. A lot of people want to see you in person. I'd imagine. Yeah, the, um, actually, the I find that the more there's uncertainty and crisis in the world, the greater is the demand for my time. So it's kind <laughs> of a, a form of job security. You'd almost think that I created all the troubles in the world just to keep my job. But yeah, the. There's a lot of travel taking place now after um, uh, almost none for about two and a half years. So I'm actually pleased about that. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, I've read your title and and uh, your background, but how did you get into your role today? What's your, you know, were you always interested in economics and how did you find yourself where you are today? Well, I've always been interested in economics. Uh, when I was younger, I thought I would study politics. And my father said to me, you know, I'm not a rich man. You're going to have to make some money on your own. <laughs> and, and he suggested that economics might be a way to make money, uh, but where there's a link to politics. And he was right about that. Mm. And so I've been doing economics my whole professional life. And I enjoy it. It's, it's really interesting. Well, as they say, may you live in interesting times. Uh, we are right. in some pretty interesting times, you know, Indeed. coming out of coming out of the COVID era, whatever we were. What are we in now? A quasi post COVID. Uh, I think your your president announced the COVID uh, pandemic was over. That yeah. may, that may or may not be a little <laughs> premature looking at the numbers. Well, it may uh, never be over. I mean, the, yeah. we will. COVID will always be with us, I'm told, but uh, we seem to be able to live with it now. In that sense, the pandemic is over. Uh, the yeah. one exception being China, where they can't seem to live with it. Yeah, I want to get back to that. That's kind of one of my first questions, because um, yeah. before I do that, uh, let's talk about Deloitte. So no one no one listening sure. here doesn't hasn't heard of Deloitte. But tell uh, us okay. something about Deloitte that might surprise us. Uh, what 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 surprises people about your organization? Well, Deloitte is the world's largest professional services firm. Uh, when I joined almost 20 years ago, it was mostly uh, an auditing firm with a little bit of consulting on the side. Today, it's mostly a consulting firm with a little bit, not a little bit, quite a lot, but um, a smaller amount of uh, auditing on the side. We do all sorts of things for all sorts of uh, businesses and government uh, organizations around the world. We're in about 150 countries. We employ over 400,000 people. Uh, in the most recent fiscal year, we had uh, revenue of about $60 billion. So 
we're big. <laughs> 60 uh, and, billion. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't paid. I know the numbers of people and I know lots of folks who work for Deloitte, but that's, oh, that's, sure. that's immense, right? That's, that's a huge and, organization. And we do a lot of interesting and good things. Uh, I mean, in addition to auditing and tax advice and consulting, uh, we, um, advise both businesses and governments about things they can do to make the world a better place. Actually, uh, the, that's that's kind of a um, you know a standard line, but it's actually sure. true. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think the most interesting thing I ever heard of Deloitte doing was when uh, Sudan split from South Sudan, creating a new country, and uh, the United States Agency for International Development was tasked with helping. South Sudan create a country from scratch and they <laughs> hired Deloitte hmm. uh, to help in this process. And we sent a whole bunch of young consultants out to the desert in South Sudan to live in tents and create a government from scratch. Wow. Um, and I thought that's really interesting. If I were younger, I, I would have loved to do something like that. But um, so that's just one hmm. unusual example of the kinds of things we do. Well, nation building, right? I mean, and and yeah, I wanted I wanted right. to ask you I wanted to ask you that because you know our scale of the discussion today we're going to start very global. So I think it helps the the viewers or the listeners understand the breadth of resources you have either access to or just sure. you know you could get questions from South Sudan to Paris to Rome to wherever. Right. So in our discussion today, I wanted to start very global, and then we're going to work our way down. To the Canadian okay. context, and and of course, retailers trade around the world, so they're very sensitive or very attuned to global issues. And I wanted to go, kind of not nation by nation, but area by area, a little bit of nation by nation, and kind of a rapid fire round because uh, we okay. could spend an hour just talking about China, of course, uh, yeah. and, and the prospects of China. But uh, let's go through uh, from let's start in China, and I wanted to talk about the economic prospects there because there's a couple of things happening, right? The of course the the um, the COVID zero policy has created uh, much uh, sudden disruption. That's a geopolitical policy. And then the broader politics, or sorry, the broader economic uh, in- initiatives, things like the um, the Ring and Road, which is their broader big investment in countries around the world. How is their economy looking and shaping up? And uh, what's your observations about uh, China? Let's start there. Their economy is not looking especially good right now. It's sort of a perfect storm of negative headwinds that they're facing. One headwind that you alluded to is these uh, COVID policy, a zero tolerance policy, whereby if one person in a factory is infected, they shut the factory down. If a thousand people in a big city are infected, they shut the city down. And it's interesting that although there's been a rise in infections in China, the level is really very low. just to put it in perspective, the rate of infection here in the U.S. is about 300 times higher than in China. And yet we go about our business right now. We don't mm-hmm. even wear masks anymore. Yeah. In China, that very low rate has led them to impose severe partial or full lockdowns on 70 major cities um, a few months ago. And although they've lifted some of those lockdowns, there are still substantial restrictions that suppress economic activity, and actually disrupt global supply chains. Mm -hmm. Then China also has problems in its property market, which are likely to persist. They have electricity shortages because of climate change, which led, uh, because of a heat wave in the summer, water levels declined, which made it difficult to produce hydroelectric and nuclear power. 
So factories had to shut down because of that. And then they have a government that is has become perhaps hostile to the private sector with more support for the state sector, even though over the past 30 years, a disproportionate share of their growth came from the private sector. So all of these things are conspiring to make China's economy grow slowly, which it will do this year and next. And that has an impact on the global economy. It leads to weaker growth elsewhere. Mm. Uh, It leads to lower commodity prices. Uh, And we're still seeing uh, disruption of global supply chains. And anecdotally, we're seeing many global companies start to move some of their supply chain processes Mm. out of China to other countries in order to avert some of the political risk involved with China. It's it's interesting because we often think of China in the contemporary context as a manufacturing powerhouse, but they're also a consumer powerhouse. They have a billion people that can consume goods and and many retailers uh, that uh, we would know, Canada Canada Goose or uh, Roots have have gone there. Starbucks just announced a major expansion into Mm -hmm. uh, into China. There's a lot of consumers there. So I guess that that economic, those economic headwinds prevail. I guess the last thing I want your opinion on China is, I mean, typically Chinese governments take a very long view to these things, which you know, is is the long view out in the short term, there's a little pain. Uh, any sense of the long view of they're just going to muster through it and, and get through it. It's it's not always knowable, but what, do you, what are your thoughts on um, that? I mean, the thing is, I think there's debate going on within China. The current regime under Xi Jinping um, has made some significant changes. One, of course, is the COVID policy, which it's reluctant to change and I think serves them well in terms of restricting in and out travel. Hmm. Um, and again, this greater emphasis on the state sector and on the government and on the Communist Party. Um, and I think there is some resistance to that on the part of more market-oriented leaders within China. And how that will unfold in the next few years, I'm not sure. Uh, but at the very least, it's having a disruptive effect on global business. Now, global, as I indicated, many global companies exposed to China are starting to move supply chain processes out of China. But they're also wary of offending the Chinese government because they also want to sell into China. Right. Uh, so there's a balancing act there. You're right. China is a huge market, 1.4 billion people, second yep. largest economy in the world. 50% uh, e-commerce, 50-5-0. They're expecting, I was talking yep. to, uh, I interviewed uh, in Las Vegas, someone from Alibaba Tmall, and and we were talking about that they're almost at the fifty percent of all retail sales are online now, digital. So it's quite right. You know, it's it's an interesting thing that um, we look to China for trends like live streaming shopping, but they don't always translate directly. So that, I think that'd be the last thing that you know we continue to learn. It's just because it works there doesn't mean it's going to work here. So well, a- it, it it increased dramatically there during the pandemic when people yeah. had to stay home. Um, and it made sense to shop online. And we, we saw the same thing sure. in North America and in Europe, but yep. not to the same degree. Yeah. Let's move on from China and talk about, I want to talk about Vietnam, looking at other Asian nations. Now, they seem to be, they come up in my conversations with retailers quite often as a source right. of manufacturing. They seem to be uh, maybe a net beneficiary or a nation that manufacturers, even private label retailers are looking to as an alternative to China or just a standalone nation on itself? They seem to be on the rise. Would you concur? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, China's, uh, I mean, Vietnam is probably the fastest growing economy in, in Southeast Asia right now. And there's been a lot of investment in low value added manufacturing. And, and, and this was already going on pre-pandemic because as China grew, wages rose. And um, in terms of making things like apparel, textiles, shoes, toys, electronics, that's very labor intensive with wages going up in China, it didn't make sense to do those things there anymore. So a lot of that capacity left China and a lot of it went to Vietnam because the Vietnamese uh, government was very welcoming. Initially, there were some some hiccups because they didn't have the infrastructure, they didn't have a trained uh, workforce of managers, but that's changing. And now Vietnam is, with its 100 million people roughly, it's a very attractive place to do uh, these types of things. So I expect that to continue. Well, let's stay with Southeast Asia. Let's talk about India. They're always the economic powerhouse next. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they uh, again, the population is, it's hard to, uh, and the education, the population, they're the largest, I think they're now the largest English speaking democratic nation in the world. Um, but they've always been seemed to be held back by infrastructure and a bunch of other things. What's your, what's your forecast? What are you thinking about uh, India? Well, they are growing rapidly. They probably could grow faster if they played their cards right, which they haven't done. Uh, there are many obstacles, as you indicated, um, infrastructure. There are policy obstacles, regulations, especially regarding the labor market, as well as intra-Indian trade. Um, there is a reluctance to allow um, sort of a rationalization of some economic processes. So, for example, in India, a lot of retailing is mom and pop. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it would make more sense from an efficiency point of view, and even from the prices paid by consumers, it would make more sense to consolidate and allow big retailers to, to grow at the expense of the small mom and pops. But that would entail a lot of those mom and pops losing their businesses, losing their jobs. So there would be a difficult transition, which the government is somewhat reluctant to allow. So that's just one example of the types of regulations that inhibit greater efficiency in the Indian economy. Plus, India is also a fairly protectionist economy. The, the level of trade as a share of GDP is much lower than China and other major Asian economies. Uh, hopefully, that will change uh, because there is a the potential to accelerate growth in India. It is a vast economy, also 1.4 billion people many of whom could be considered middle class in the sense that they have discretionary purchasing power. And although you alluded to a very high level of education for some people, there's still an awful lot of people that are illiterate, undereducated, and malnourished. So it's a, there's a real, real dividing line there in India, India uh, that will also need to be addressed. But it's, it's becoming... Um, a more attractive place for global companies to invest, especially for those that are maybe worried about some of the uncertainty uh, regarding China and its relationship with the West. Let's turn our minds to Japan. I mean, when I was going to school, Japan was the economic powerhouse, but they, they're, they've had 20 years of, of stagnant growth. Do you see that changing? Do you see a turnaround in the, in the Japanese economy? And and again, both both uh, manufacturing from many commodities, but also consumption. Well, 
in part, that slow economic growth reflects a declining population. On a per capita basis, they actually haven't done too badly, but they have very low birth rate, very aging population, and only recently have begun to allow a significant amount of immigration. Um, so on a per capita basis, the standard of living in Japan is quite good. Uh, income distribution is reasonably good. So people have a pretty good life there. Uh, so even though the overall economy hasn't grown rapidly, that doesn't seem to be that big of a problem. Mm. I think going forward, I mean, the government continues to try to do things to accelerate growth. Uh, one of the things they have done is to allow a bit more immigration, especially of skilled workers. Uh, they have taken steps to encourage more female participation in the labor force, which has been successful. In fact, the female rate of participation in Japan is higher than the U.S. right now. Hmm. Um, and um, they've also taken steps to, uh, Japanese companies have taken steps to rationalize uh, and reduce costs. So a lot of what were high-cost manufacturing processes in Japan have been moved offshore to places like China and Southeast Asia. Uh, and that has enable those companies to become somewhat more competitive. Well, let's turn our minds to Europe. Um, and I guess we should include England uh, in Europe, even though they're, they've Brexited out. I mean, England, the right. headlines, they're getting pounded by a strong U.S. dollar. They're really, they seem to be very challenged. But, uh, you know, when we think of Europe now, we think of, of Germany under stress from, uh, you know, high costs of energy. I think that's happening across Europe. So what's your prognosis for for the European uh, economy? Well, beginning with the UK, uh, they're in trouble. Um, they have very high inflation. The Bank of England is tightening monetary policy. Energy costs have increased dramatically uh, as they have across Europe, in, in large part because of the fact that Russia has uh, withheld gas from Western Europe. Uh, and so the new British government under Prime Minister of Trusts uh, has proposed and will implement a plan of subsidies uh, for households and businesses to offset the high cost of energy. Mm. That should initially help to stifle inflation, uh, but it is a fiscal stimulus of about $150 billion uh, that in the longer term could be inflationary and will likely lead the Bank of England to tighten monetary policy more than they had previously planned. And then on top of that, the British government just last week announced uh, that it will cut taxes, uh, boosting the budget deficit at a time when inflation is high and the, the job market is tight. Uh, and markets reacted very badly to that, as they should, uh, because that really didn't make sense. And uh, so we saw bond yields rise, equity prices fall, and the value of the pound dropped sharply. Now, the U.S. dollar was rising already for a variety of reasons, but the pound dropped not only against the dollar, but against the euro. And right now, uh, I didn't look this morning, I think it was the latest was the pound was about a dollar seven, U.S. dollar, a dollar and seven cents, uh, which is great for me because I'm going to London next week. So it's I can do some shopping. It will be really cheap. I remember uh, the. I mean, I remember the days of going to going to England, and, and you just you know, from a Canadian dollar, you just double it. Like everything you'd see, you would right. just double it. That's and right. uh, yeah. it's yeah. a it's a phenom it's a phenomenal difference. So now, as we think about when I think of mainland Europe, 
I think uh, I think primarily of Germany. But what are the what are the prospects for recession in Europe with all the forces that are that are lined uh, up thanks to the very, war? Very high. Uh, I I think it's very likely that Europe, if it's not already in recession, will go into recession before the end of this year. Uh, <clears throat> the, the Russians have cut off gas through the Nord Stream pipeline, have reduced gas flows through other sources. And although European countries, especially Germany, are taking steps to get gas from elsewhere, like Norway, Algeria, liquid natural gas from the U.S., um, they're still facing a severe shortage and severely higher energy prices. Uh, It's likely in the cold winter months that there will have to be some rationing of gas which will lead to shutdowns of factories and other facilities. Uh, That will mean a decline in economic output, and that means a recession. So it's almost a certainty to me, unless Putin changes his mind, uh, which does seem likely, uh, that there will be a recession in Western Europe. Um, and, And then add to that the fact that there's already very high inflation, mainly driven by energy prices, and the European Central Bank which runs monetary policy for the 19 countries that use the euro as their currency, uh, is tightening monetary policy, uh, raising interest rates. And that, too, will add to uh, the risk of recession. So things aren't looking great for Europe right now. And, and, and you know, the Russians are doing this uh, because they want to undermine European resolve with respect yeah. to the sanctions. Uh, at the very least, they're hoping that this might deter the Europeans from implementing new sanctions, especially on the energy sector. Uh, And I think they also want to undermine European unity, because a lot of the gas that flows from Russia to Germany, much of that goes beyond Germany, say, to France or other countries. Um, And Germany is obligated to supply that gas. Uh, But, you know, Germany is hoping, for example, that France will conserve as the Germans have done and the Russians are hoping, well, maybe if they don't, there'll be a conflict uh, between the two. And meanwhile, there are political uh, events in Europe that could undermine European unity. We We, just saw the election. Yeah, we have a new government in uh, in Italy, right? A far right. right. uh, A very far right government in Italy. There's already a far right government in Hungary. Um, There are fairly strong far right political parties in France and Sweden um, and and in a couple of other countries. So I think Putin is hoping that, um, I mean, from his point of view, this is he's playing a long game. He's hoping he can undermine European unity and undermine the unity that's evident between Europe and North America. Well, let's, let's talk about Russia. It's a good segue. Let's talk about Russia. I mean, they, they've gone from, a pariah behind the Iron Curtain to uh, a major economic uh, exporter of, of goods, everything from fertilizer to, to commodities, and now they're back to being a pariah again. Um, they I mean, are. How, they're isolated. Yeah. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you think of that capacity, could both consumption and production, just extracted basically from the global economy? What, what impacts on the global economy does all that, including the Ukraine, suddenly missing from a productivity well, perspective? Uh, Putin didn't necessarily play his cards right. Uh, It was always his goal to weaken NATO, to weaken the European Union. His actions have done quite the opposite. 
uh, it was always his goal to um, be a reliable supplier of energy to Western Europe. Now he's not. Um, and of course, it was his goal to put back together uh, the Russian Empire, not the Soviet right. Union, but the Russian Empire. And he's failing at that. So he and, and he also started this war with the expectation that China would have his back and they don't. So I think he's really weakened Russia's position. Now, in the short term, he hasn't done too badly. I mean, the war hasn't gone well, but his revenue from oil and gas has gone up because of the rise in energy prices. But in the longer right. term, now that Europe is working very hard to obtain alternative sources of oil and gas, as well as accelerating investment in clean energy, in the long term, that screws Russia, really, because all they have uh, is oil and gas, as well as a few other mineral commodities and some grain commodities. But for the most part, it's an oil and gas economy. Uh, it's a commodity economy. Uh, I mean, it seems to me Russia had a chance that they, they missed, which was to um, utilize a highly educated population with a strong technology base, given their, their big military. Uh, they could have diversified their economy toward technology, toward manufacturing, uh, but they didn't. Uh, they could have done what Israel has done. Israel is, is a highly militarized economy, but that has enabled them to become uh, a major center of high technology. Russia could have done that, and they did, and, I, and it may be too late for them to do that. So the outlook for Russia is poor. Uh, they're going to lose some of their sources of revenue. They're losing people. They're quickly losing educated people right now, and their overall demographics were poor to begin with. So um, uh, I think the outlook is bad. And right now, Russia is in recession. Let's uh, go to the other part of the world. Let's talk about Latin America. LATAM is a market. Ironically, it's funny. It's a huge market, but it, it and it's very close to us. But I don't think of it as often as I think of Europe, for example. But it sure. is a massive market. And, and right. it's a little bit of like here. It's a little bit of an unfair question to say, how's it going in LATAM? But what's your, you know, what's your sense of the economic conditions in, in uh, overall in, in Latin America? Uh, I would say there's weakness. Um, Latin America is very dependent on the world's three big economies, the U.S., Western Europe, and China, all of which are currently decelerating. So that has a negative impact on the ability of Latin American countries to export, uh, especially their, their big commodity base. The one big manufacturer uh, is Mexico, and it is highly dependent on the U.S. and to a lesser extent on Canada. And given that the U.S. and Canada are both decelerating, that puts Mexico at some risk of recession. Hmm. Um, and unless, then, unless they pick up some manufacturing, continental-based manufacturing, as I hear, you know, let's get out of let's get out of uh, risk of putting things on boats, and let's at least get it onto a somewhere where we can get it onto a truck. So there may be a bit of give and take in that, yeah. Well, yeah, I think Mexico will benefit from global companies uh, becoming wary of China. And there was a time when a lot of manufacturing investment took place in China at the expense of Mexico because labor costs in China were so much lower. That's no longer the case. Actually, labor costs in China are now higher than in Mexico. And Mexico has free trade, sort of, uh, with the U.S. and Canada, not as much as before. Um, and uh, 
Mexico is in close proximity and there's no political issues. So mm. from that perspective, it does make sense for some companies to shift uh, assets from China to Mexico. The other thing with respect to Latin America is that with the rise in the value of the U.S. dollar, that encourages capital flows from those LATAM countries to the U.S. That, in turn, puts downward pressure on their currencies, uh, which is inflationary for them and also hurts their ability to service their dollar-denominated debts. So as a consequence, some countries in Latin America have raised, some central banks have raised their interest rates in order to stabilize their currencies, but that comes at the cost of economic activity. So um, the outlook, at least in the short term, is not very good. Well, let's now turn our minds to North America and uh, let's talk about kind of the three hot take headline things that are at least hot take headlines in my mind. Uh, The first of all being inflation. We're seeing inflation in a couple of key sectors. We're seeing uh, energy inflation and we're certainly seeing food inflation. That seems to be two of the key drivers driving up the inflation number. What what are you thinking about uh, inflation? I hear the sense that it's peaked in some way, shape, or form. Certainly oil and gas, you know, gas prices have come down, but what's your prognosis? I think overall inflation has peaked in both the U.S. and Canada. That's still very high, and it's going to take probably much tighter monetary policy to bring it further down. I think it's also worth noting what drove this inflation. It's not just the U.S. and Canada. It's also Western Europe and a number of other places in the world. There was a, a synchronous increase in inflation to a 40-year high in multiple countries. And you know, historically, normally, inflation is driven by excessive monetary and fiscal policy. And we did have some of that, and that probably played a role, but not the dominant role. Instead, what we saw during the pandemic were two things. One, uh, a dramatic shift in consumer spending away from services and toward goods because people were staying at home, so they didn't go to restaurants or get on airplanes. They bought stuff for the home, you know, furniture, appliances, electronics, sure, sure. fitness equipment that they probably didn't use. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can always dry. You can always dry your clothes on it. That's uh, the upside. Exactly. To, uh, that's you know, what that, that Peloton. Are, yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, but in any event, there was a global surge in demand for goods that businesses were hard pressed to meet. Uh, and that happened at a time when there was already stress on supply chains because of the pandemic, because, for example, of the zero tolerance policy in China. So this led to a dramatic increase in the prices of goods, much more so than services. Uh, And then, and that meant that the overall rate of inflation rose a lot. And then you had the war in Ukraine, which led to a sharp rise in commodity prices, especially oil, gas, and food. And fertilizer, Uh, fertilizer, fertilizer, right? Right. Very important. And that, although the commodity prices have started to come down, consumer behavior has started to shift back towards services and away from goods. Mm-hmm. Supply chains have started to get better. So all of these factors are now helping to cause inflation to decelerate. The risk is that with inflation still very high, though, that people's expectations change and their behavior changes in a way that exacerbates inflation. So far, that hasn't happened. Uh, And if you look at labor markets, uh, even though we're looking at very tight labor markets in multiple countries, wages have not kept pace with inflation. And I think central banks, by tightening monetary policy, 
are, among other things, sending a signal that we're going to get this under control. And they're trying to anchor expectations of inflation. And evidently, they've done a pretty good job of that. Hmm. So now, as they tighten monetary policy further with the goal of slowing economies and maybe even engineering recessions, that with a, with a soft the, landing, hopefully. I mean, this is the well, art and science, right? I mean, try to tap the brakes enough to, to not hit, they, have us all. I think they've given up on soft landing, to be honest. <laughs> okay. I think okay. they're, they're, they're focused primarily uh, on inflation. And by tightening monetary policy, add to that all the other factors I mentioned, change in consumer behavior, change in supply chains. Those things should, in fact, get inflation down. So if you look at, say, the U.S., where the most recent number uh, for August was uh, year-over-year inflation of 8.3%, that's really high. But it's down from 9.1% two months earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, my expectation is by the end of uh, 2024, inflation will be under 3%. So Under 3% by the end of 2024. Right. So okay. we're going to get this down, uh, I think. I mean, it's all, it all depends on events, and things could change that would make my prediction wrong. Uh, so, but I'm more confident about that prediction than I am about whether or not we'll have recession. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously central banks would like to do this without creating a recession. That's the challenge. Uh, but they may fail at that. Our own Deloitte chief economist in Canada, Craig Alexander, is now forecasting that Canada will have a recession. And here in the U.S., our view is that at least in the coming uh, year, there's maybe a one in three chance of recession um, uh, with that probability rising the longer you go out in time. Um, So there's a substantial recession risk. Uh, I mean, right now, economies here in North America are actually still growing, uh, but because of uh, what central banks are doing, we've already seen a substantial deceleration in economic activity. And so we may be getting close to the point where activity starts to decline. Let's talk about the the, the phenomenon where we have these economic circumstances and the somewhat unusual, I think you tell me, full employment. I mean, we've got uh, that you don't usually see those two things move together. So what's your what's your thinking around you know, retailers everywhere try, are struggling to find, we're going to talk more about this, but they're struggling to find people to fill jobs. It's got to be a hit on the productivity right. within the economy. What's your prognosis? So, so we saw in multiple countries during the pandemic, a drop in labor force participation, as well as a sharp drop in immigration. And those two factors have created a shortage of labor at a time when the economy is still reasonably strong. Um, you know, why did labor force participation drop. Some older workers decided to retire early. Um, Some parents dropped out of the labor force to take care Mm -hmm. of children who were not in school full time. And now, even though they're back in school, those workers haven't fully trickled back into the labor force. Some people dropped out because of a skills mismatch. Maybe they lost jobs when uh, retail stores closed permanently and they didn't necessarily have the skills needed for the jobs being created. And then, of course, governments cut back on immigration, uh, and that hasn't fully recovered. Uh, So the end result is a severe labor shortage, and you would expect that that would lead to dramatic increases in wages, but that hasn't been the case overall. 
Within some industries and some demographic cohorts, yes. But for the economy overall, wages have been surprisingly tame. And I think that may reflect uh, businesses taking the view that this inflation will be temporary and they don't want to get stuck with permanently much higher wages. So in many instances, they're offering retention bonuses or signing bonuses or investing in labor saving or labor augmenting technology uh, in order to boost the productivity of the existing labor force. Um, But um, that is one of the conundrums for uh, we economists to understand why when there's a shortage, you're not seeing this increase in wages that would normally be the case. So I want to hang on this whole labor issue because I get asked, you must get asked, where did everybody go? And and you and I on the on the chat we were having when we were talking when you were in Rome and I was in Vegas, we we're talking about this kind of idea I have of five different things that contribute all at the same time to this issue. So I wanted to bounce those ideas off you. You've already mentioned the first okay. one, which is retirement or early retirement. Right. Now, in Canada, Stats Canada released numbers in August, 300,000 Canadians retire the most in a 12-month period in history. I think there's some pent-up demand, so to speak, for retiring. I think some people put off retiring during the COVID era because they said, well, I'm working at home. I you know, might as well stick with it. It feels like some of that was going to happen anyway. I mean, I think back to Japan, an aging population, you know, you're going to see more retirements. Uh, are you, are you, are, do you think that's a... a would you rank that as a very important contributor to what's yeah. happening? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we were already, you know, we already have uh, onerous demographics in terms of the aging mm-hmm. of the population and, and the slow growth of the working age population or even decline in it. Uh, so it was, it was always going to be the case that employment growth would slow down because of demographics, but it wasn't necessarily the case that, participation in the labor force would decline, but that Mm. happened for older workers. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. I think during the pandemic, people were scared about transmission for those people that didn't have the opportunity to work at home. People did see until the recent turnaround, they did see their portfolios rise in value. They saw their homes rise in value. Mm. They saved a lot of money during the pandemic because there weren't a lot of spending opportunities. So I think many people felt financially comfortable retiring earlier than they planned. And those people are not coming back. So you're asked, where are they? They're home or they're, they're playing home. golf or something. They've really, yeah, they've, they've had an epiphany that uh, they better get on with life before, uh, before uh, it's too late. Um, right. Is there any evidence, I'll move on to the second one, which I have this idea that there is a lot of obviously government subsidies in Canada. We had the CERB when people were at home. And I think, and I wonder if there's any evidence to support this, that people took the opportunity to upskill themselves. So some of the service industries lost, you know, you can't find, I, yeah, I keep saying it was in Vegas. You know, many of the restaurants are only open three days a week because they can't, just can't find the people. Yeah. And they're not coming. Their worry is they're not coming back because they've kind of upskilled themselves. And now there's a bit of a, you know, with people retiring, this kind of move. I, any evidence to this? I don't know uh, if they've upskilled themselves. I haven't seen evidence of that. I think a more likely explanation when it comes to service industries like restaurants is the lack of immigrants. Okay. Uh, I mean, I've seen data showing that the share of the working age population that are foreign born has suddenly dropped and it's never dropped before. Mm. Uh, and, and that was because immigration was cut off and some people who were first-generation immigrants went back to where they came from because there weren't opportunities to work 
during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we saw that especially in hospitality, you know, restaurants, hotels. We saw it in agriculture. We saw it in construction um, and other industries as well. But the this isn't talked about much in the, the popular press, and I'm not sure why, but I think the lack of immigrants is a very substantial contributor to the labor shortage. And if it persists, it will contribute to slower economic growth. Now that's a, a you know, in Canada, we, we slowed down, but then the government has really rapidly expanded, you know, not just uh, accepting Ukraine, Ukrainian refugees, but I think we're up to 400,000 a yeah. year. I mean, the government's trying to make up, uh, make up a bit of lost ground. I mean, to some degree, it, it, it has become a more uh, open place than, um, than the United States, for example, which feels oh, like, yeah. 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 No, the U.S. is not an open place right now. And I think Canada, Canada for a long time has been more open to immigration mm-hmm. than the U.S. And, 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 and I'm glad to hear that there's an effort to, uh, restore the level that, that was lost during the pandemic. But that's not happening here. Um, and, and I view that as a problem. What do you think about the impact? This is one of my other ideas. Now that people, not everyone, can work. Uh, the, the geography is, is now uh, gone aside as, as one of the biggest constraints, right? So that works for us and against us. I talked to retailers who are based in smaller communities. They're benefiting actually quite significantly because they can hire talent that is based anywhere in Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to think this is, I mean, at a very theoretical level, isn't labor mobility productivity good? And I have to think it contributes to people saying, well, maybe I, I don't have to work in, uh, in a kitchen. Maybe I can work in a call center, but I'm really just sitting at home and work in a call center and, you know, right. wherever. Uh, this, Any, anything this, behind that? This is a source of debate. Um, I mean, certainly we seem to be moving toward a hybrid world where some people work at home and some don't, and some people work part of the time at home and part of the time at an office or a facility. Um, and there's a, and, and so, you know, there's more flexibility, I guess. And, and for many workers, there's the opportunity to work from wherever they want to work. Um, and there's a debate about what this means for labor productivity. On the one hand, if workers are happier in what they're doing and can use technology well, they may be more productive than they were before. On the other hand, um, productivity in the long run is driven by innovation, by new ideas, by ingenuity. And there's a, a good deal of evidence to suggest that that takes place often in the informal moments when people get together and exchange ideas. Mm. And if people aren't together physically, uh, it's harder to do that. It's much harder to do that on a Zoom call than it is if you're sitting in a conference room together. Because yeah. if you're sitting even in the the most boring meeting ever in a conference, <laughs> at some point you take a coffee break or a lunch break, and then you go outside and you say to your friend, "Oh, let me let me bounce this idea off of you." That doesn't happen in a in a Zoom environment. So I think we need a hybrid in the sense fine, it's okay to work at home. And there are some productivity benefits from that. Mobility has got to be a big one, right? I mean, you know, labor, I, as I said, you can be anywhere, anytime and work anywhere, anytime. You're not any more restricted by where you are, right? Right. But on the other hand, I think it will still be important for people to get together periodically and share ideas. Um, human beings have a certain need for other human beings, I think. Now we're getting into the realm of psychology, which is not my <laughs> area. 
but, but, but you must you must be asked this question. You, but you must be asked this question by clients because I think companies are trying to figure out. Well, I it's not necessarily, and sometimes it's hard to hire people to come into the office. But maybe we create events or institutions or opportunities for that kind of magic you're describing outside of the traditional workplace. Maybe we're right, getting together sure. at a, a more off sites or something. Are you seeing any evidence that of that adaptation? Um, anecdotally, yes. Um, I see it in my own company. I mean, we're even before the pandemic, we were a very fragmented organization. I always have worked at home when I wasn't traveling. I don't go to the Deloitte office in downtown LA very often. Uh, I don't really need to because most of the people I interact with are somewhere else. Um, so I don't need to sit in traffic all day just to sit at a desk. I can sit at a desk at home, but, um, I mean, what, what I'm seeing with our firm is that, um, we're, we're still having, you know, we're back to traveling again. We're having in-person meetings so that we can get together and can exchange ideas and can get to know each other. Uh, so that allows for smoother working relations, uh, for us. And we're also back to traveling to talk to our clients again. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting that early in the pandemic, there was real fear that how are we going? We had a lot of work in the pipeline. We figured we could do the work. But how are we going to sell new work if we're mm -hmm. not walking the halls of our clients? Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, the clients weren't even in their offices. But somehow right. we did. Uh, we did mm -hmm. actually quite well. Uh, so evidently given the technology that exists, it's possible to do this. But I mm. still think, I think we're moving toward a hybrid world. The real big question about that hybrid world is, what will it mean for urban centers? What will it mean right. for office property? I think a lot of office property, rather than be offices where people have a, a fixed office, they will be facilities where meetings take place and events mm. take place. Uh, but it's hard to predict what this will mean <laughs> for central business districts yeah. and their overall economic health and the smaller businesses that exist in those places that support office workers. I, I just don't know the answer to that yet. I guess if only we had WeWork cutting big fat checks back, uh, back in the go-go days again, we'd, we'd have a different, a different take on what's going to happen with all that. Um, let's, we're, we're at uh, 148. So I just want to remind everybody if they have any questions for Ira, just pop them into the chat uh, and uh, we'll, I'll leave some time. At the end, we're kind of coming close to the end of our time. So just a bit of a time check. And um, let's, uh, by the, the fifth one, and let's not dwell on it because we're kind of short on time. I think, you know, COVID itself is still present. We talked about that at the very beginning. I read a Wall Street Journal article that said um, something like 500,000 people are missing from the U.S. job force because of COVID. There's a million people uh, killed uh, by the, uh, by the, during the right. pandemic. And, and yeah. uh, you know, so you know, we, we should probably acknowledge that. And, you know, there's people yeah. missing from the workforce every day still. Right. Fortunately, right. as we, as we said, the, the more extreme outcomes seem to have been thankfully right. muted by vaccines and all those things. But, so, But also keep in mind that not only did people get sick from COVID and some still are, but during the pandemic, when, when there were restrictions on mobility, a lot of people didn't address other medical problems and, mm. and ignored them. And as a consequence, uh, a lot of people died or became sick from other factors uh, that normally would not have led to severe illness or death. Mm. And that's probably still with us. I, I guess on the upside of 
if you could say of the COVID era, if you're in the wedding business right now, it's good to be in the wedding business for the next couple of years. And Ira, you know what that means in the next couple of years after that, we're going to have a baby boom around baby. the world. Right. Uh, well, I don't know about that um, because birth rates around the world are surprisingly low. People get married and then they, they, they're happy to just not have to deal with kids. <laughs> they're just not happy. They're not having a lot of kids right now here in the U.S. or in China. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting in China, uh, over uh, almost a decade ago, they ended the one-child policy and they thought, right. okay, this is the solution to our demographic problem. No, people aren't having more kids. They're actually having fewer kids than they did mm-hmm. uh, when the one-child policy was in place. So people got kind of used to it, I guess. Well, yeah, you know, maybe maybe the fact that more people can work from home and the the nature of work changes. Who knows? Maybe that creates an interesting dynamic. Um, I don't know. We'll see. All right, let's spend the last kind of moments together talking about Canada. Let's focus back in okay, on Canada sure. now. Now, mm-hmm. not unlike uh, in some ways, England, we're getting uh, starting to get a bit hammered a little bit by the strong U.S. dollar. I can see. You know, we we import so much goods, or we pay for the goods in U.S. dollars. So right. that's pretty. Yeah. Uh, pretty meaningful. So, what's your what's your outside-in prognosis for the Canadian economy? Well, as I indicated, our chief economist in Canada is now forecasting recession, which I think makes sense. I mean, you're what you're having in Canada is uh, a significant tightening of monetary policy in order to quell inflation, and that will have negative consequences for credit markets and economic activity, and that comes on top of the loss of real income. Uh, experience due to much higher uh, energy and food prices. That also comes on top of the slowing of the U.S. economy and the possible recession here, uh, which has a big impact on Canada because uh, the U.S. is its by, by far Canada's largest export market. Um, and as you indicated, the rise in the dollar exacerbates the cost of imported commodities. On the other hand, the drop in the loonie means more competitiveness for Canadian exports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that could help partly counterbalances. Yep. Right. Um, and, you know, as the, the Bank of Canada acts and as other factors uh, take place, um, inflation should come down pretty quickly, I think. And once it does, the Bank of Canada can reverse course and allow for a, an economic recovery. Uh, people worry a lot about recessions, and they should because they're, they're sometimes painful, especially for the people that lose jobs. But it's worth noting that most recessions are short-lived, and if there is one in Canada, it will probably be short-lived and relatively mild, and then there will be an economic recovery. And I think it makes sense for businesses, at least if they're in a good cash position now, to plan for the recovery, not just simply plan mm-hmm. for a recession, uh, mm-hmm. because it will come. Uh, and there will be opportunities for stronger players, especially uh, given that the weak tend to, uh, some of them tend to disappear during recessions. So for the stronger players, uh, there's an opportunity to gain market share. We got a couple of questions from our audience. Thanks uh, for the questions. I've got them both in the chat and the Q&A. First question, and I think this is a, a similar issue in the United States, that part of the immigration issue is the accreditation. In other words, you know, you have someone who's a doctor in one place or a nurse in another place coming in, and there's a there's a drag on the immigration because they they wind up 
not being able to practice their trade, engineers or whatever. Right. Is, is sure. that a is that a, a, a consistent um, policy, or is that on the upside? Is something that can that can help uh, move the economy forward if we kind of speed up this? Have you seen any examples around the world where that that's yeah, helped? I, I don't know enough about that to be honest, but I mean, uh, certainly the fact that you wind up with doctors driving taxis—that's a loss of productivity and not that there's anything wrong with driving a taxi but a taxi driver will on balance be less productive than a doctor um, and so it does make sense to try to find ways to accredit uh, people with skills so that they can make a larger contribution to the economy but even even if they don't just the fact that they're they've come um, adds to the number of workers and adds to economic output so is I, th I think it's important to bring in immigrants. It's also worth noting, uh, not just in Canada or the U.S., but around the world, immigrants are by their nature risk takers. They're taking a risk, leaving everything yep. behind. Yep. Uh, and risk takers are the kinds of people that are entrepreneurial. And the evidence suggests that in multiple countries, a disproportionate share of entrepreneurs are immigrants. They start businesses. They create jobs. They add to economic well-being. So uh, whatever they wind up doing, just the fact that they come is usually on balance a positive thing. Let's, uh, the other question is is kind of, uh, and we'll end on this question, when is this all gonna get to normal? I mean, it's a funny question in one way because what does normal look like? I guess the disruptions in some way are kind of easing, supply chain disruptions are easing, they're not they're not over. And then I, I, just to, to revisit your point about if we go into recession, your feeling isn't that it will will not be a prolonged one. It, it, what's so basically, our, our viewers asking, you know, when can I get back to a normal life here? With well, normal, probably normal never. Uh, we're we're going to head toward a new normal. Um, I mean, there, we've had major disruption, and the world going forward will be somewhat different. You know, the labor force may be different. It may be more of a hybrid world, um, which technology has enabled. Um, we. We've seen more uh, geopolitical stress, and that's not likely to go away quickly. And so there'll be different mm. geopolitical relations and uh, consequent impact on global business and supply chains. And then there's the big problem of climate change. This year, we finally saw for the first time significant economic disruption because of climate change itself. We had a major heat wave around the world this summer. Uh, the major impact was to lead was a drop in water levels in multiple countries. Um, and that meant, for example, in China, that hydroelectric power plants didn't have enough water, so they couldn't produce power. Factories had to shut down because there was a shortage of electricity. In France, the, the drop in the water level led to half the nuclear power plants going offline because they didn't have sufficient water to cool the nuclear power plants. And France relies heavily on nuclear power. This isn't going away. This is and, going and, to And I saw in Germany, right, some of the some of the water levels are so low they couldn't get boats up and down uh, right. the and Rhine. Transportation so. has been affected too. That's true. And now I, the, I, the irony here is that while it's important for us to move away from burning oil and gas and coal, uh, and instead using nuclear power and hydroelectric and so on. It's the climate change itself that disrupted the ability to produce that clean energy, mm -hmm. uh, which is 
Again, ironic. So uh, I guess we could have an entire other session just on the impacts of climate change. I was watching this great presentation uh, around if you thought there was a 20% chance of this happening, what would you do? Even if you don't believe all the way in climate change, I think it's a whole other topic we just barely scratched the surface yeah. on. I mean, yeah. you see you see nations like China seeding the skies to make rain. What could go wrong? Um, <laughs> anyway, Ira, listen, this has just been a blast for, for me and I'm sure for the audience. Such an informed, we've done a around the world presentation. Uh, this was just fantastic. So uh, I wanted to wrap up thanking everyone and all the attendees. Of course, thank you for your generous insights and, and sharing. Uh, be sure as we uh, look to our next events, the next Retail Matters events will demand continue for private label. I think you would probably say yes, at least in the short term, as uh, economic uh, belts get tightened a little bit. Ira, I can't thank you enough. I, I Again, I could spend the entire afternoon chit and chat with you, but I think you've got lots of things to do. So once again, great to see you, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into this special episode of The Voice of Retail. If you haven't already, be sure and click and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so new episodes will land automatically twice a week. And check out my other retail industry media properties, The Remarkable Retail Podcast, Conversation with Commerce Next Podcast, and The Food Professor Podcast with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Last but not least, if you're into barbecue, check out my all-new YouTube barbecue show, Last Request Barbecue, with new episodes each and every week. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of ME LeBlanc Company and Maven Media. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at emmeleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone.